And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Let me say that again. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to the Desert Breeze Community Church. We're back on our study through the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 16. This is our certainty in a world of doubt, working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We've titled this weekend's message, Taming the Shrewd. Not to be confused with uh, William Shakespeare's play, Taming the Shrew. Before going on a business trip to Europe, a wealthy New Yorker drove his Rolls Royce to a Manhattan bank and requested an immediate loan of $5,000. The surprised loan officer requested collateral and the man handed over the keys of his Rolls Royce. The officer lent him $5,000 and drove the car into the bank's underground garage for safekeeping. Two weeks later, the traveler returned to repay the $5,000 in principal and $15.40 interest and to reclaim his keys and car. As he was leaving, the officer said he had researched the man while he was gone and discovered him to be a multimillionaire. And he was wondering, why did you need to borrow $5,000? The traveler's answer was, I didn't. But where else in Manhattan could I safely park my Rolls Royce for two weeks for $15.40? So apparently when it comes to money, this guy has lots of it and he's very shrewd in his management of it. Take a look at your sermon notes, part of the intro here. There's a couple thoughts I want you to know as we head into this message here this morning. You can be shrewd, and that that word is used twice in verse 8. It's the key verse, verses 8 and 9 are the key verses of this text. We're going to be working our way completely through chapter 16 of Luke. And so I put the definition there on your notes. You can be shrewd, intelligent, wise, prudent, mindful of one's interests. You can be shrewd with money in the here and now but not be shrewd with money in light of eternity. So I know a lot of very shrewd businessmen, but they don't even have eternity on their mind or on their heart. They're very wise with their finances. They make a lot of money, but eternity is nowhere to be found in, in as they manage their resources. But here's the big idea for us. However, you cannot be shrewd with money in light of eternity. If you are a believer in Christ, you will live with a current perspective of eternity And you cannot be shrewd with money in light of eternity without also being shrewd with money in the here and now. It's going to make a difference in how you manage your resources. If you live with the current perspective of eternity, it's going to make a difference in in really every aspect of your life. So all I'm saying is that your beliefs will have a profound impact on your behavior we, we talk about that all the time here. Now, there's three, three big ideas. You can see them on your notes that we're going to be looking at here. Three things that our text will teach us. The first thing is that we are, are managers of money that is not ours. We are managers of money that is not ours. That's the first point. Second point is that we are recipients and givers of a love and friendship that is out of this world. 
And then the third point is that there is nothing we can invest our lives in that has greater impact eternally than God's kingdom. Yes, we're talking about money this morning, and you might be saying, well, why are we doing that? And the reason for that is not because we are in need, you know, we're, we're, we're somehow desperate and all of a sudden Pastor Ray came up with a message on money. Actually, it's, uh, the reason we're talking about money is because it happens to be where we are in our study in Luke. And, uh, and so as we've walked through Luke, Luke is talking to a uh, very affluent and very intelligent group of people. And I think that this is uh, obviously... Um, very significant for us, very relevant for us. And so he talks a lot about money throughout this book. And by the way, let me just say something a, a little a bit about, about money here at Desert Breeze is that we have never passed the plate in 26 years. And God has provided for us. And I think you're gonna understand why he's done that. And we've never had to what we've classified as, as kind of beat the sheep to try to get them to give more so that we can keep the lights on and all that. We've never had to do that. Now, there were a few times where we, we certainly struggled. There was no doubt about it. God came through. He blessed us. But I really believe, and it's because of the generosity of the folks that are here. And you're gonna see in this study here today what should motivate and what I believe that many of you are motivated by. So in a way, I'm kind of preaching to the choir you know what I mean. So a lot of this is, uh, is stuff that you guys are doing. So this is affirmation to you. There might be a few here that maybe you're not. This would be a, a good time to really kind of recalibrate your life and to make sure that you're on track with this. And so that's why we're talking about it because it's part of the Gospel of Luke. And as we work our way through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to deal with whatever topics that we face. And so I'm glad you're here this morning. It's a pretty intense topic because we're going to talk about heaven and hell as we work towards the chapter. Here's how we're going to do it here. We're going to spend a lot of time on the front end just reading through the text, and I'll read a little bit, talk about it, read a little bit, talk about it. So it's going to take us a while to get to the actual notes, to fill in the blanks, so hang in there. But before we even tackle any of that, let's first of all pray because we need a lot of help this morning to understand this text. So God, we are delighted to be here this morning. We, <laughs> we love your presence. A mighty fortress is our God. You are a mighty fortress. We thank you for that. We love you, God. We worship you. And we know that every good and perfect gift comes from you. But the best gift of all, the best gift of all is your presence in our lives by grace through faith in the person and work of Christ Jesus. And, and we know, God, it's not seminars on money that make us shrewd money managers with an eternal perspective as much as it is in understanding how, how Jesus became poor so that we might become rich in him, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. And so we pray through the work of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to wonderful things from your word. Let us see more clearly how abundantly you have blessed us to be a blessing to others. We pray in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name, and everyone said, amen. So let's walk through this text. Here we go. Starting in verse 1, chapter 16, he also said to his disciples, this is Jesus, there, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, so this manager is getting fired, and so he's, he's talking to himself here. You ever do that? Yeah, we always do that, okay? We all talk to ourselves, and so we're kind of, he's processing it, and he says to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm getting fired. 
I'm not strong enough to dig. I don't want to dig ditches. And I'm ashamed to beg. And so, okay. So rich man had a manager, probably combination of a COO and a CFO. The manager ran the rich man's estates and also invested his money. The rich man terminates the manager, and the manager, knowing he has, he's got bad relationships with everyone else in town, and that he'll never be able to get another job like the one he has, and that he'll be reduced to manual labor and begging, he's got to do something. So verse 4, this is his plan. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. How to win friends and influence people right here, okay? That's, that's what he's dealing with. He says, okay, I don't have good relationships here, but I need to do something so that I have a, more of a future here, so that I'm not just reduced to manual labor, digging ditches and begging on, this, on the corner. Verse five, so summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down and quickly write 50. Woohoo! Cuts it in half. That's great. How many would like to have their bills cut in half right now? Okay. It's not going to happen, okay? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's only in the story. Okay, so here we go, verse 7. Then he said to another... And how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. So, so it's interesting here. So this manager brings in his master's debtors, reduces the debt that they owe his master. And, and this, of course, creates friendships that he didn't already have, making the debtors extremely happy, giving him future opportunities with them. Now, the peculiar thing about this story is verse 8. We haven't read it yet. We're going to read it in just a moment. But the pe peculiar part of the story, verse 8, is when the rich man finds finds out and commends the manager for his shrewdness. That's, that's a bit odd, because you'd think he'd get, get, get on him and say, hey, dude, I've got less income now because you just sliced what they owed me. And so here's my best theory of what I understand here, is that this manager was putting his own enormous fees into the investment. So when he sliced it, when he cut it in half, and reduced it with these others, all that he was doing was reducing his take on it. And so he, he didn't touch the rich man's income. And so his master commends him, but it, it was probably also giving him, the rich man, a, a good name in the town. So it didn't even touch his income whatsoever. That's kind of my understanding of that. And so Jesus is using this to help us to understand something. He's using this parable to help us to understand how we need to learn to be shrewd with our resources and all that God's given us. The rest of verse 8, he says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He's just saying, hey, look at this guy. This guy's more on the ball than what a lot of Christians are when it comes to their management of resources that God has given them. And, and then verse 9 is really a very profound verse. If you take it and meditate on it, there's much more depth than what you've, on your first read you're going to see. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, when it fails, not if it fails, it's going to fail. That's, that's an important point. When it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. So 
Key verses, eight and nine, word of shrewdness, used twice, intelligent, wise, prudent, mindful of one's interest. I know some of you are saying, okay, Pastor, I think I got it. I got this one. I got this. I, I understand this one. I know what God's teaching us here. I've got it. it what, what Jesus is saying, it's okay to lie, cheat, and steal as long as it makes friends. <laughs> what do you guys think? Think that's what he's saying? Well, that would be obviously inconsistent with the rest of what the Bible teaches. And in fact, as we continue through this text, you're going to see that's not what he means what he means at all. In fact, what Jesus is using here is an if this, if this, then how much more argument? If this, then how much more? That's the argument that he's making here. So do you see how this guy manages his money within his temporal perspective? Even more so, should you manage your money within your eternal perspective? Do you see how this guy gave up short-term financial gains and put his money into something that is long-term and more valuable, such as relationships, even more so should you do that. So that's, a, that's the point he's making. Now, we, we know that he's not talking about being dishonest and, and being unfaithful in what God has given us because he talks about that in verse 10. Let me continue reading. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? I think the true riches he's talking about here is not stuff, it's people, it's relationships. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? And then I'm sure you're familiar with verse 13. It says, no, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And I think that he's making the point that really money is our number one rival God, especially in our culture. It's our number one rival God. Now, he moves from this to verse 14, where he, he really pushes the, the Pharisees really hard here. He comes down on them. And verse 14, he says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all of these things and they ridiculed him. So this is Luke writing and he says, these guys love money. You wouldn't be able to tell it from the outside though because they looked like they had it all together. These were the religious leaders of that day. They went to church, they read the Torah, they did all the right things externally. But over time, Luke knows based on what Jesus had taught him and what Jesus' observation of them that they were really truly lovers of money. And uh, notice what he says here. So, so the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, this is Jesus, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So, so he's... he's so there's a couple different things here. So he's just saying, so what is the basis of your feeling good about yourself? Is it because you compare yourself with others or are you actually living by God's standard for your life? And don't you know that God's standard is really more about our heart than it is the externals? It's the internals. It's not the externals, although the externals are important, but not near as important as the internals. And, and sometimes you can have the internals going well, your heart, and it takes a while for the externals, the, the, your behavior to catch up to that. But you can have it all together on the outside and not so much on the inside, and that's what he's saying about the Pharisees. He's really helping us, and as we will see and as we'll continue to read, he's going to make a distinction between legalism and the gospel. And, um, and so the Pharisees were all about legalism, they were about moralism, they were about going to church, reading their Bible, dropping money in the box, doing all the right stuff, and yet their hearts were a long ways from, from, from God, from Christ, and, and he's just calling them on that. 
And it was based because they had a system of feeling good about themselves, standards that by comparing themselves with others, as opposed to God's standard. Look at verse 16. And he says, the law and the prophets were until John... Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. So he's making a distinction between legalism and the gospel. And everyone forces his way into it. What is that about? What is he saying? It's, there's a war. Listen, that's what he's saying. There's a war going on for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections. You're going to give your heart's deepest loyalties and affections to something or someone but he's saying there's a war going on for, for what's in your heart. And the Pharisees, though they looked good externally, their hearts had been given to money and other things and the appearance of looking good in front of others. That's what he's saying here. But the good news transforms us. And so, so there's, a, there's a major difference between a morally restrained will, morally restrained will, that's Phariseeism, that's moralism versus a supernaturally transformed heart. That's the gospel. Only the gospel can transform your heart. I mean, you can do all the right things on the outside and be motivated out of fear and pride, but only love, the love of, of Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ can transform our hearts. That's what he's wanting us to understand here. And he says, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. So what he's saying here is that the gospel doesn't make the law obsolete. It just gives us a different relationship with the law. So here's, here's the question you need to understand. We teach this a lot. Here's pop quiz time. I want you to discuss it with the folks sitting around you. What's the difference between legalism, moralism versus the gospel when it comes to the law? What, what is the law? What role does the law play uh, through legalism, moralism versus the gospel? Do you get that? No? Does that make sense? So, okay, okay, let me, let me simplify it because you guys are looking at me like deer caught in the headlights, okay? <laughs> what the heck did he just say? I'm not even sure what I just said. What did I just say? Here's what I said. I said, what's the difference between legalism and the, and the gospel? And where's the law? Do we, you know, as, do we have to keep the law? Are we supposed to keep the law? Where does the law play in, in, in the relationship? When you're a legalist, the Pharisees, it was really important to them. And they used the law for, for something that was important to them. But how do we, do we use the law? Where's the law in that? You still don't understand, do you? <laughs> Just turn to the folks next to you and say, hi. <laughs> See if they know the answer. Maybe they know. Go ahead, real quick. Okay, here's what I was getting at. Maybe I th you guys are really, sounds like you guys are, have some good discussion going on, a lot of good conversation. It, w was it on what we're talking about, though? That's the question. So here's the deal. Legalism, legalism, moralism, uh, Phariseeism, I obey, therefore God, God blesses me. If I obey, get your act together, then God will bless me. That's legalism. It's moralism. The gospel is God blesses me, God accepts me in Christ Jesus, therefore I want to obey. Does that make sense? See, that's the point that he's making here. So, okay, so legalism, I obey, God blesses me. 
the gospel. God blesses me in Christ. Oh my goodness, do you have any idea what we have in him? I wanna obey. So therefore, what I was saying here is that faith and grace don't make God's law obsolete. It's just that God's law is different. We have a different relationship. So, So in understanding the law, what he's saying here Making this distinction is that the purpose of God's law, and we've talked about this in the past through our studies, the purpose of God's law is that we may know the holy nature of God. When we talk about the Ten Commandments, it's revealing to us the holy nature of God. It's also revealing to us, as we look at the law, it's like a mirror, and it reveals our sinfulness and our need for a Savior, because we can't live by the law. So it makes us desperate for a Savior, and then when our hearts are invaded by His grace and goodness, there's this, it's not a morally restrained will, it's a supernaturally transformed heart, our hearts are transformed, and then we want to honor him, and how do we do that? By living according to God's word and the law. We honor him that way. So we, you can't earn his blessing through the law, but have, once you have his blessing by grace through faith in Christ, oh my goodness, it's, it's the standard that we live by. Now, he gives us an example of that. You'd think as we read through this, we come now to verse 18, we go, why did he drop that one in there on divorce and remarriage? And I think that he's giving us an, uh, an example. Because uh, let me read the verse. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So in, this was a day in time, in Jesus' day and time, this was a day and time when people were not keeping their marriage vows according to God's standards unlike our modern times. I was wondering if you're gonna laugh. I was kind of nervous there for a minute. It's like, yeah, that's right. We're better than all those folks back. No, 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 no. In fact, just actually just like our modern times. Now, God has established his standards because he loves us. And he's really, really wise. So in his love and wisdom, he's established these standards. Oh, by the way, you can't live by them. The only way you can live by them is if, you are, if your heart is supernaturally transformed through the gospel and by committing your life to Christ and he begins to transform your life and then you begin to live by them. But he's just saying, hey, here's, here's a standard that's being violated here today. He's just showing us the importance of the law. Now, he moves on from here to a story that's a pretty heavy-duty heavy story, the rich man and Lazarus, and he's giving us an illustration of verse 13. Uh, of that you can't serve God and money. He's gonna give us a guy who served money. And let me read verse 19. He says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Stop there just for a minute. This is a dude that everybody in America today, that's what we're going for. That's what we want. We want that life. That, that's, that's, the, that's the American dream. This, that's this guy. Verse 20, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, which is heaven. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades, that's hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus on his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his tongue in water and cool my tongue for, I'm sorry, to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Now, that's pretty heavy. 
That's why I love studying through the text like what we do. It's kind of hard to avoid when it's right there. It's a big, big chunk of this chapter. The idea of hell, fire, and darkness is metaphorical in Scripture. Some of you are going, good thing. It's, it's metaphorical for something that is probably much worse, okay? Yeah. Yeah. And what's fascinating about this is that the Lord of love, the author of grace, Jesus spoke about hell more often and in more vivid terms than anyone else in the Bible. I want you to also take note here that there are two characters in this story. You got Lazarus. He's the poor guy. His name means God is my salvation. God is my salvation. He has a proper name. Did you notice that? But what about the rich man? Does he have a proper name? No, he's a rich man. Why is that? That's purposeful. Think about that. Why is that purposeful? What's Jesus trying to get across? Because he's a rich man or nothing. Sin is building my identity on anything other than Christ. This dude lived for money. He had the American dream. He lived an opulent, successful life. People applauded him. Woo! That's awesome. I'm going to learn how to make money like you. His identity was that he is a rich man, and now he has died, and that's all he is known for. He's just a rich man. He doesn't have a sense of identity. Lazarus has a sense of identity, and his name, as I stated, what is his name? God is my salvation. He has an identity. Listen to me. You build your identity on anything other than Christ, it's just a matter of time. You're going to be devastated. I mean, that's part of what this is teaching us. Don't build your identity on something that's in, in creation. Build it on the creator. It will withstand the most difficult of times if your identity is on, on Christ and on God, and it's an eternal identity. So Mark 8, 36, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Psalm 84 10, it says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. What is he saying there? He's just saying, hey, if I go through this life and I'm poverty, I'm in poverty and I struggle my whole life, but if I've got God, I would rather be in poverty and have God than to live wealthy and rich without him. That's what he's saying because that's all temporal and I've... I've embraced the eternal, and that gives my life much more value and, and security and significance. That's what he's saying. I think there's something else here that I, we can learn from this is that for believers, so this poor guy, for believers, this life is as close to hell as we will ever get. But for unbelievers... This life is as close to heaven as you will ever get. There's a uh, quote by C.S. Lewis that haunts me because it, it's convicting for me, and so I want it to haunt you, okay? <laughs> I want it to be convicting to you too because I don't live like that. I, I find my, my heart's deepest loyalties and affections often drawn to so many things in creation. 
And uh, this is what C.S. Lewis says. He says, he who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God only. If you have God, even if you're begging at a rich man's table, you have more than the rich man that sits at that table is what he's saying. That doesn't add anything to that rich man's life. In fact, if he doesn't have God, he's in poverty. So I think there's something really significant here. When you, and I think if you could only understand what you have through Christ Jesus, the wealth that you have in him, it would blow you away. I mean, it would resolve any discontentment that you have and that you struggle with. Notice uh, here how Abraham responds, verse 25. And Abraham said, child, he responds with such tenderness, child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things in Lazarus in like manner, bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from here, from there to us. What is he saying here? I'm telling him what he's saying. He's saying Hebrews 9.26, it is appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment. It's over. Once, once you die, your fate is sealed, whether it be eternal celebration with God, your creator, or eternal separation in hell for all eternity. That's what he's saying. There's no, no turning back, no U-turns, no, once you've taken your last breath, it's over. The decision that you have made in time will affect your eternity is what he's saying. Verse 27, and he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now, commentators have pointed out here that this is not a, a gesture of compassion on the part of this rich man but rather an effort at still ordering Lazarus around. He's not trying to get out of hell, but to get Lazarus in with him. And so what he's doing here, he's blame shifting. He's saying that he did not have a chance. He did not have adequate information to avoid hell. So he's wanting somebody to go tell his brothers. So the rich man is, is deeply in denial, angry at God, a, unable to admit that it was a just decision, wishing he could be less miserable, but in no way willing to repent or seek the presence of God. He's not seeking the presence of God. I just want this torment to end. If sin is saying to God... Leave me alone. Then hell is God saying, okay. Verse 31, he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I think he's speaking prophetically here. Someone will rise from the dead. That's Jesus. He did to prove, to give validation to that he is God in the flesh, 
come to this earth to rescue us from our sins and to reconcile us to the Father. But what is he saying? He's just saying, hey, if you're a sincere seeker, you will find him because there's plenty of information, there's plenty of evidence in God's word. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. You have no excuse is what he's saying. This is the word of the Lord to us. Woo, that's heavy duty. That's chapter 16. Now, let's go through the notes here, taming the shrewd. Here's the first thing. We are managers of money that is not ours. That's verses one through 13 in that parable. And so here's your fill in the blank. We don't serve our interests, but God's. We don't serve our interests, but God's. Now, here's the typical American response to that. I can hear it. It's like, this is my money. I worked hard for this. My question is, with what? With what? what did you, how, did you, how did you make this money? What did you use to make this money? Are you alive? Kind of helps to be alive to be able to make money, isn't it? So are you alive? Did you make yourself alive? Who gave you breath? Who gave you life? What makes your heart beat? Well, Pastor Ray, you're kind of intense there, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, I am, because, because I find this arrogance all around, and I, I tend to fall prey to it. It's like, this is my money, and I'll do with it what I want. Whoa, 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 whoa. In fact, it tells us in Acts 17, 25, God gives all mankind life, breath, and everything else. He doesn't just give us life, breath, but everything else. He gives us gifts, talents, opportunities. The list goes on. You are where you are because he gave you those gifts, those opportunities, If you were born into poverty in a third world country, you wouldn't be where you are today. I often think of those that we minister to and we help in Tala, Kenya. Some of these kids that are born into poverty. If we weren't there to kind of give them opportunity and to reach out to them to help to develop them, they wouldn't have much of a chance. But look at us, look at what we have and what we've been given. That's why it tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't? And we tend to do that. That's why I love what David said. I think the reason why he was a man after God's own heart, First Chronicles 29, 11 through 14, basically he says, both riches and honor come from you, God. He recognized that. God, all that I have has been given to me by you, and I want to honor you with all that you've given to me. So here's the next point. If you're not faithful with little, we won't be faithful with much. And I've heard people say this a lot. If I could just start making more money, I know that I, I would... I could better manage my finances and start being more generous. What do you guys think of that? I hear people say that. How would you respond? Would you say, if you're not doing it with a little, you're not gonna be able to do it with a much. Have you ever seen any of those, uh, those programs where they talk about people who uh, their, their finances were a mess and then they won the lottery? And everything went really wonderful for them from that point on. No, because if their character was jacked up when they had little, when they get much, they're just gonna, it's gonna be a bigger mess. It's like a magnifying glass. It just makes it look bigger. It's just like it blows it out of proportion. It, it, it gets even worse. If you can't manage the little, you won't be able to manage the much. That's what it is. Success comes from faithfulness in the little things. Starting small. If you can't manage the little, you won't be able to manage the much. By the way, I talked about it last week as we ended our teaching series on parenting. Remember, we took a break for about three weeks, and I ended by talking about character, and uh, it's not what happens to you, your circumstances, but what happens in you, your character that either makes you or breaks you in life. It's not whether you have little or much, it's who you are. It reveals your character. 
And so that's what he's saying here in, in our faithfulness. Can you be faithful with a little? If you can't, you won't be faithful with much. So here's the next point on your notes. If we don't manage money, it will manage us. That's verse 13. Money will either serve you or you will serve it. But the way you get it to serve you is to put God at the center of your life and begin to apply the five biblical principles of wise financial management found in the scriptures. And you'll notice that each of these are found in the really Proverbs. It's one of the books of wisdom found in the Bible. So let me walk you through these. So first of all, here's one of them, planning. You need to have a budget. Budget tells your money where, where to go as opposed to finding out where it went later. <laughs> Going, whoop. I don't know where all my money goes. Well, do you have a budget? No. Well, there you go. You need to have a plan. It's just plan spending. By the way, that plan should be what we classify as the 10-10-80 rule. So the first, the first 10% when you get paid should go where? To God. So that was kind of, you were kind of hesitant on that one. You were like, God, okay. The first 10% should go where? Ooh, that was a little better. The next 10% should go where? To your wife. That's what my wife told me. Is that not right? She goes, hey, dude, God and me. That's how I've always done it. No, actually, it's 10% to her and I. Do you hear that, Nancy? She's in a coffee bar right now. I hope she hears this. I'm kidding. So 10 to God, 10% savings. You live on how much is left over? 80%. That's a good, I mean, that's a good model. I think it's a rule of thumb. I think as you get more established, I think your generosity is gonna increase. I think the Bible also talks about not just tithes, but offerings and alms. Some of you can't even start there. And you need to start small, though. Wherever you might be, you need to start. You need to start somewhere. But that's, but that's just part of, this is that biblical principle in this. Uh, and, so, and so you got planning, you've got accounting, it's record keeping, knowing where your money went, going back to your records. And then you got true wealth. By the way, if you don't have true wealth, a fear of the Lord, finding contentment in him, you're not gonna be able to do the next one, which is self-control. There's a billion dollar agencies out there trying to get into our pocket, trying to get us to spend our money. And so our impulsive, compulsive spending habits is a result of a lack of self-control. Our lack of self-control is due to the fact we don't have, we don't understand what true wealth is. We're not resting in our completeness and contentedness in Christ. And so we need to understand true wealth, the fear of the Lord. When you understand that, fear of the Lord is a joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you that ruins you for anything else, okay? That's the fear of the Lord. And so that, that helps to deal with, it gives you the self-control so you're not drawn away to all the crazy spending habits that people get themselves into. And of course, then there's that generosity, faithful, sacrificial, joyfully giving of your resources. So let me, let me give you an analogy here. What if someone came to you and wanted you to manage their wealth with these terms? You keep 90% and you give them 10%. Let's just say Bill Gates or Warren Buffett comes to you. <laughs> oh, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? And so they come to you and they say, hey, I, I want you to manage my resources, my f- finances, and you can t- keep 90% and you only need to give me 10%. Any takers? Come on, I'm in. I would do it. Give me that billion dollars right now. I would do it. I mean, that would, that would be a, an unbelievable deal. You guys are looking at me kind of like suspicious and kind of like, what is this guy talking about here? I would like the job. Of course, 
you would like the job. No one on this planet has those kind of terms, and yet that is what God is offering us with what he's given us. All that you have belongs to God, and God wants you to be radically generous with what he has given you. He's just saying, give 10% to me, and you live on the 90%. By the way, a lot of people say, well, that's Old Testament. Well, actually, it's New Testament. It's commanded in the Old Testament. Jesus commends it in the New Testament. We studied this already in Luke chapter 11, verse 42. But like I said, I think it's gonna be more than that. I think it's not just gonna be tithing, but I think it will also be offerings, which is over and above that, and then alms, which is helping the poor. My wife and I have practiced this. Wow, I, I practiced this before I got married, and my wife and I have practiced this throughout our marriage relationship. And, uh, and we've taught this. And... Um, and I, th- and I think also, all that you have belongs to God. God wants you to be radically generous with what he has given you. And if you're not being radically generous, Malachi 3.8 says, it's not just stinginess, it's robbery. If you're living with this idea that we are managers of money that is not ours, we don't serve our interests but God's interests, Malachi 3.8 actually says it's not just stinginess, it's robbery. It's not just being miserly, but it's thievery. It's not just a lack of compassion, it's a lack of integrity is, is really what the Bible teaches. Now, in, the, in our game of life, we take 100 folks or so through the game of life every year, and it was not this game of life, but the last one, I had somebody in that class say, I've been, we've been a part, this past church that we were part of, that they were always struggling financially, and they just beat the sheep regularly to try to get more money out of all of us. And we couldn't figure it out, but now, now that we've been here at Desert Breeze, we're trying to figure out, you guys seem to really do well financially. What, what's going on? And I just said, it's grace of God. But I think, I think that there's a group of people here that are getting it. They're not giving out of fear or pride. But it's, but it's not a, so it's not a morally restrained will. It's a supernaturally transformed heart. Their heart is ravished by the beauty and the glory of Jesus. And they understand the riches that they have in him. And so their lives are not a, a reservoir, but a river of those resources. And that's the next point here on the notes. That's the next point. We are recipients and givers of a love and friendship beyond this world. They know that. There's people here that know that, and they're experiencing that, and therefore, that's why we're able to see what's going on here at Desert Breeze. So I have a front row seat to not only see God do some pretty amazing things in my own life, but also in the lives of many others who faithfully practice these principles, not out of fear or pride, morally restrained will, but supernaturally transformed heart to give glory to God and to give, to give appropriately. And so a couple verses here I want you to understand as it relates to this. So look at verse 16, if you still have your Bibles open. So he said, the law and the prophets were, were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. What is that? He's talking about this battle going on for our heart's deepest loyalties and affections. But what is the good news? Oh, my goodness, I love the gospel. I absolutely love the gospel. You guys know I do. Because the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have everlasting life, have eternal life. We have this. We are recipients of a love and friendship beyond this world. This is the love you've been looking for your whole life. 
There's no greater love than to have the love of the Creator. Love us, adore us, give His life for us. This is a friendship unlike any other friendship. In this friendship, He is a friend that will always, always let you in and never let you down. So when you live not just with that as a concept, but that becomes a reality, the gospel goes deep into your heart, it changes everything about you. You begin to respond to life differently. You're not functioning out of deficit, you're functioning out of abundance and overflow. And so of course, of course, you're gonna wanna share that love and friendship with others. So no pleasure on earth compares to knowing and experiencing God's boundless and irresistible love through Christ. I just, I never get tired of that. I never get tired of hearing that. That he loves me. I never get tired of the gospel. Any more than I get tired of hearing my wife tell me that she loves me. And I'm one hunk of a guy. Well, she didn't say that last part, just the first part. She could adapt the last part, though. I'm just kidding. No, I love, her. I love her when she says, hey, I love you. I love you too. Do you ever get tired of that? What if I were to say, you already told me that when we got married 40 years ago. Don't need to tell me again. No, in fact, she can pick it up a few notches. Okay? She says, just tell me again. Tell me again. Tell me again. I want, that's the gospel, the gospel. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. Oh, and I offer a friendship, and I will never leave you or forsake you, and I'll always be there for you, and I'll always let you in, and there will be secrets in a level of intimacy that will blow your mind that you will experience with me that is beyond anything you've ever experienced. That's what he's, that's what he's talking about here. Look at verse 9. This is so significant. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, when it fails, it's going to fail when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. There is no investment in this world that will last. By the way, I'm not saying that you shouldn't invest into the future. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have retirement plan. You need to have all of those, but don't make that your significance, your security. Don't make that, make Christ. Our whole economy could drop overnight. And if you built all your sense of identity and security in that, you're shot. You're going to be putting a gun to your head, I'll guarantee you. Because your whole sense of identity and who you are is in that. But build it in Christ, in who Christ is. That's what he's saying here. So in this parable, the shrewd manager realizes that it's more important for him to have friends than to have money in the bank. Jesus is saying, if this is true in a temporal sense, how much more is this true in an eternal sense? So the bottom line is that life is about what? What is life all about? Is it about accomplishments, achievements, the acquisition of stuff? No! No, that, that's all meant to help with what? Relationships. It's all about relationships. You guys know this. I mean, as a paramedic with Phoenix Fire for the number of years that I was there, and then even more so as a pastor, I've been on the bedside of many who have taken their last breath and gone into eternity. And believe me, none of them, none of them ever talked about acquisitions, accomplishments, and, and any any stuff, there was no stuff talked about. It wasn't big cars and homes and all that stuff. That didn't mean anything. What meant something was their faith, family, and friends. 
See, it's the ultimate thing you need. And you only feel truly wealthy when you are lavished with God's love and are giving that love to people and surrounded by people who love you back. Three things happen when we give to further God's kingdom. We help people become Christians. That's your next fill in the blank. We help people become Christians. The greatest use of your money is to invest it into getting people into heaven. When it says, talks about Matthew 6, 19 through 21, lay up for yourselves treasures in, in heaven. What does that mean? It's you lay up treasures in heaven by investing and in getting people there. That's, what, that's how you do it. Here's the next one. We make friends for eternity. Money is a test that determines how much God can bless my life with true riches. Verse 11, he mentions this true riches. He's talking about people. Notice how Jesus is describing heaven. It's not about mansions and streets of gold, although that will all be there. But it's more about family and friends. It's not possessions that gives you security, significance, and, and satisfaction. It's people. It's friends. It's family. Verse 9. I mean, how many times have you heard this on an interview after a devastating hurricane? Uh, my million-dollar beach home was destroyed, but my family and friends were saved, and that's all that matters. I saw that a lot just in, in the last month or so. People were talking more about faith, family, and friends. That's the stuff that matters. Here's the next point on your notes. Heaven should be full of people who cheer when you get there. Why? Because you invested in their lives. I mean, imagine what it would be like if you really believed this, which you should believe this if you're a follower of Christ, that by grace through faith in the person and work of Christ, you and I will live for eternity with family and friends, and most importantly, with our Savior in absolute perfect love. Perfect love. On this side of eternity, our love is kind of imperfect in so many different ways. We have barriers this side of eternity. I've got a list of those barriers. There are five barriers to our love in this life, making, uh, making it a, more of a source of pain than it is joy at times, and it will be done away with in heaven. But here's some of those barriers to be loved for our own sake. That's what we desperately want. We just want to be loved for our own sake. I don't want to be a means to an end. It's so sad and unfortunate sometimes when we are loving someone and then all of a sudden we realize they were just loving me just to get something else. That's one of the barriers on this side of eternity, but that'll be gone in heaven. We'll be loved for ourselves. We get glimpses of it certainly in time. And here's the second one, to express our love without any obstruction, without any pride, selfishness, or insecurity. We all struggle with that. Or to love mutually, to receive as much love as you give. Sometimes you feel like you give more than you receive. Or to want everyone we love to be happy. We are only as happy as, as our least happy family member or friend. If you've got five family members or friends, most of the time you're unhappy because one of them are going to be unhappy, and you want so desperately for them to be happy. But heaven is a place, it is a place of, of happiness and, and a world of love, as Jonathan Edwards says in his sermon. It's a, heaven will be a world of love, of perfect love. And then the last barrier here is to never be separated from the people we love. And my wife and I... As I stated, we've been, uh, we'll be in 40 years this year, and we look at each other knowing we're getting old, and thank God for the years that he's given us, but one of these days, I'm either going to be standing over her casket or she's going to be standing over mine. Everyone you love, eventually you're going to lose. But that won't happen in heaven, thank God for that. So as, as we thought about that, it'll either be her standing over my casket or me standing over her casket. She swears up and down it'll be my casket. Does she know something that I don't know? 
I've been watching a lot of those murder mysteries lately, and I've got, she's got me a little bit concerned, so I'm kind of wondering about that. So all that will be gone. Perfect love, perfect love. Heaven will be a world of love. Use what God has given you in such a way that it brings you into a fellowship of friends that will survive beyond death. We're almost finished here, and I want to show you a video clip, and then we'll work through the rest of the notes really quite rapidly, and it'll help to prepare us for communion. But uh, how many have ever seen the movie Schindler's List? Schindler's List? Pretty heavy-duty movie. It's based on a true story of Liam Neeson. He's uh, Oskar Schindler, a German businessman in Poland who sees an opportunity to make money from the Nazis' rise to power by staffing his plant with the free labor of Jews from a prison camp. His greed is eventually overcome by his conscience as he realizes that his factory is the only thing preventing his staff from being shipped to the death camps. By the time Germany falls to the Allies, Schindler has lost his entire fortune and saved 1,100 people from likely death. Now, this is a, if you've never seen the movie before, spoiler alert, okay? I'm going to tell you the ending. You're going to see the ending of the movie. And he realizes a little too late that he could have saved more lives. Now, I'm not showing this to you in any way to make you feel guilty. This is all about the grace of God. This was a guy that, that wasted his life in so many ways and used people, and he realizes he could have done more. So I just want you to watch this, think about it, and then we'll finish up. We are managers of money that is not ours. We are recipients and givers of a love and friendship beyond this world. And now we uh, are going to prepare our hearts for communion this morning. There is nothing we can invest our lives in that has greater impact eternally than God's kingdom. This goes back to the story of the rich man Lazarus. So here's your next fill in the blank. By denying hell's reality, you demean God's holiness and justice and lower the stakes of redemption, minimizing Christ's work on the cross. There are those that would proclaim a lot of mainline churches would deny the reality of hell. Hell is a reality. The Bible's very clear about that. People will spend all eternity there. And that's a fact. And by denying hell's reality, you demean God's holiness and justice and lower the stakes of redemption, minimizing Christ's work on the cross. The greatness of salvation is measured by the awfulness of the thing we're saved from. Our salvation is so great because of what we've been saved from. If I were to say, what are you saved from? Are you saved? What are you saved from? We are saved by God, from God, God's wrath against us. And I'm humbled I'm humbled that I was the cause of my Savior's unimaginable suffering, but also filled with wonder that he did it willingly and lovingly for me. So as we take the communion elements in just a few moments, oh my goodness, that, that, represents, that represents something that's beyond our, our wildest dreams that, that the Creator would do that for me to reconcile me to the Father. To, to experience and to know this love and friendship that only can be found in him. God passed the required sentence of death on our sins, so there's that part of God 
God's nature that he's just. He can't overlook sin, and so that's, he's very just. And so he passed the required, that's your next fill in the blank, he required sentence of death on our sin, that's his justice, and then took that punishment himself on the cross, that's his love. So when you look at the cross, you see his justice and love combined. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. But the gift of God, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's ours through Christ and his sacrifice. It's unbelievably costly. And uh, it's, it's, it's amazing when you reflect on it and it gets a hold of your heart, it transforms you. And here's the next point. We are in the highest stake battle ever fought on the broadest battlefield of engagement ever imagined. So we are in, that is the church, we are in the highest stake battle ever fought, heaven and hell for all eternity on the broadest battlefield. What's the battlefield? Every person's heart on this planet, 7.5 billion people. That's why it says in Proverbs 24, 11, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to slaughter. I have a doctor friend from Tucson, and he was at the outdoor country music concert in Las Vegas during the mass shooting here recently. And he was there with his wife, and he was with another doctor friend and their wife. And when they were being sprayed with bullets, they took their wives into a place, a safe place to kind of shelter them. And because they were both doctors, they went back in to try to help folks during this mass murder. And my doctor friend, Mark, who has family members that attend Desert Breeze, uh, he, as he went back in there, the woman that was right next to him got shot right in the head and fell on top of him, and he got shot right in the calf. And he said immediately his boot began to fill up with blood. And the next thing he knew, he was unconscious. He was at the hospital, and someone, some bystander, had put a tourniquet, taken off their belt and put a tourniquet around his knee that probably saved his life. And he was able to have surgery and and was able to take care of that. And and if you watch the news, you saw there was a lot of heroic actions taken by many people that saved other people's lives. If that is true in the temporal, if that's true in the temporal, and I understood that as a paramedic, because I knew that what I did could make a difference in someone's life for time. But what we do here, what we do here at Desert Breeze, it not just makes a difference in people's lives for time, but for eternity, for all eternity. Let's pray. So Father God, thank you for thank you for reminding us that the power of Christ unleashed through the activity of the church can change the downward trajectory of individual lives and cultures, that the church's effectiveness or lack thereof really does impact people's lives for all eternity. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for being the ultimate manager, the one friend who emptied himself by going to the cross in our place for our sins so that we, his enemies, could be recipients of a love and friendship beyond this world. Because he has done that for us, may we be givers of that love and friendship in shocking proportions as shrewd managers of all that you have given to us for for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. There are three stages.